1: PlushCare.com slash weight loss.
0: Welcome to the Capital Club podcast. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm and the Capital Club community, Visit our website at www.excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn.
1: Welcome back to the Capital Club Podcast. Today, I'm here with Don Trone. Don, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. Don is the CEO and one of the co-founders of 3Ethos. In 2015, he was named by Investment Advisor Magazine as the father of fiduciary and one of the 35 most influential people in the financial services industry. He is also the author or co-author of 10 books on the subject of fiduciary responsibility, portfolio management, and leadership. And father of fiduciary is quite the moniker to carry around with you. It must be, (laughs) it's a lot of responsibility.
2: It is. I get ragged on it all the time.
1: Yeah. Well, an important concept that we're going to get into. But before we do, you know, before we went live, we were exchanging notes, you are a, a a Coast Guard guy. I went to college very close to where the academy is and went to a military high school where a, a number of guys that I went to school with did search and rescue. So tell us more about kind of how you landed at the academy and what that experience was like serving with the Coast Guard.
2: I actually, coming out of high school, I actually enlisted in the Army with the intent of going on to West Point. And there was about 120 of us that we're put in a special military unit in the Army to prepare for West Point. My favorite story associated with that is we had a tall company commander. He was Polish, all consonants and last name. Could barely put his name across the name tag. So we didn't attempt to pronounce his last name. We simply called him Captain K. You know who that was? Coach K. Oh, Krzyzewski.
1: Right, yeah. of course. It's yeah. Funny.
2: Wow. Yeah. So my lineage and, and leadership, is genuine. You know, I've, I've had just extraordinary opportunities to be with some real exquisite leaders. So anyhow, at the end of that first year, it was during the Vietnam War. And as much as I wanted to go to West Point, I saw the problems the Army was experiencing. I'd be willing to bet that time period was probably the lowest morale since Valley Forge. And so I chose to go to the Coast Guard Academy instead. And then graduating from the academy, I did a shipboard tour out of Cape May and then got picked up for flight school and was flying search and rescue missions and drug enforcement missions for approximately 10 years. And actually the ninth and 10th year of active duty, I was stationed up in Sitka, Alaska. This is 1985. And I can tell you in 1985, Sitka was really remote. There was no internet. There was no satellite. There was nothing. And I knew that going up. And so I took, I checked to see what kind of master's degree I could do remotely. And back in 1985, there was only three options. One of which was in finance, financial services. So I took it just for the sake of keeping my brain alert. And when it came time to write the thesis, my master's thesis, I chose the subject of fiduciary responsibility and fell in love with the subject. First of all, What attracted me to the subject was the number of men and women who serve in a fiduciary capacity today. So I'm going to ask a question of you. You know how many men and women have a legal responsibility for managing someone else's money? Only because I prepped for this
1: conversation, but I had (laughs) no, I mean, if you had asked me that off the street two weeks ago or earlier last week, I would have had no idea. But I mean, according to your research, it's 17 and a half million people. Is that
2: right? 17 and a half million people. It's crazy. I had no idea. Yeah. And so when you think about your listening audience, the people you're trying to reach, the family offices and so forth, when we talked about the 17 and a half million, that would include the men and women that are managing the assets of pension plans, foundations, endowments, personal trusts. Uh, Now we can add to that list employer-sponsored health plans. So think of the family-owned businesses out there. Likelihood is they've got responsibility for a health plan. And now under the Consolidated Appropriations Act, those family members now have an ERISA fiduciary responsibility for the management of that pension. I'm sorry, management of that health plan. So let's get the definition out there. What's the definition of a fiduciary? So I'll give you the classic. The classic is someone who has legal responsibility for managing someone else's assets. That's the classic. What I would do is I would break it up into three parts. I'd say, first of all, the fiduciary has a duty to inspire and engage others. They need to have a passion and discipline to protect the assets of those they serve. And they need to be able to demonstrate that they have a prudent process to manage those decisions. And what I just gave you was three definitions, the definition of leadership, the definition of stewardship, and the definition of governance.
1: And it's it's interesting, You, I heard you on a podcast, that's why I reached out, but when you got into the financial services business, you were shocked by the lack of procedure process checklist as opposed to your experience
2: in the military. Could you maybe talk a little bit more about that? Sure. Yeah, first of all, uh, when I started to think about the number of men and women responsible who are serving in a fiduciary capacity, I also considered who is responsible for training the 17.5 million? And the answer is there's there's no government agency. And yet the 17 and a half million men and women are managing about 25 to 30 percent of our nation's liquid investable wealth. So the conduct of Fiduciaries has a direct impact on the fiscal health of our nation. You can see this with the number of states that have extremely underfunded public pension funds. Connecticut, where we both want school, is a good example. Last I checked, I think they were $68 billion in the rent. How do we make up that shortfall? Increase taxes or reduce social services? Either one of which is going to be very popular with the tax holders. The second thing that shocked me in that time period was the lack of academic rigor on the subject. I can only come up with three books at that time that address fiduciary responsibility One be in Charlie Ellis's book, Winning the Loser's Game, or might not have that title correct. By the way, he was the first person who actually started articulating the need for an investment policy statement for investment fiduciaries. So I put all this together in my head when I was still on active duty. And I said, geez, I love the Coast Guard. I love flying search and rescue missions. But I can see the subject of fiduciary responsibility are also putting you in a position to save lives. I mean, when we can improve pension plan outcomes, when we can improve the management of foundation and endowment assets, we're actually in a position to improve the lives of others. And uh, the other opportunity I saw is pursuing a career in fiduciary responsibility is something I could do for the rest of my life. Whereas, <laughs> a keep but toaster and helicopter pilot, Has a definite finite end period to it, you know, 20 years and you're dead.
1: Right. And I feel like people are getting smarter on this subject in terms of fiduciary responsibility, best interests, broker dealer versus RIA versus trust company. Have you seen a change in the narrative within the fiduciary or larger financial services community about what this term means and how it should be thought
2: of? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, just last week, I had a government agency interview me on those same exact questions. I'm not going to mention the government agency, but anybody who's familiar with the legislative branch would know who was talking to me. And basically, the range of questions was about whether the regulations like Reg BI was having a positive impact, uh, particularly on investors, And my response to the line of questioning was that the regulators are doing more harm than good, And there's several reasons for that. Number one is complexity. They've made the disclosures so complex that the average investor is not going to get anything out of the disclosures. Number two, the regulators have put all their bets on the disclosures. Uh, They believe that everything about fiduciary responsibility comes down to a disclosure of some fees and compensation. Well, as you know, as an investor, There's probably eight other different ways that you can harm the investment performance of an investor than just simply the disclosure of fees account. For example, you get the asset allocation wrong. Uh, You don't do a good job of ferreting out goals and objectives. You don't do a good job of assessing risks that need to be mitigated or an understanding of assets and asset location. Fail to understand the time horizon associated with the goals and objectives. Fail to define a process, an investment strategy the client can understand and embrace. A client who doesn't understand their investment strategy is likely to abandon that strategy. Wrong time, wrong reasons. Due diligence on investment auctions, your expertise. You know, how do we conduct appropriate due diligence on liquid assets, alternative investments? How do we communicate the fees and expenses? Demonstrate the parties that have been paid by asset placement? that the compensation is fair and reasonable for the level of services being rendered and then ongoing monitoring. So we do diligence in the front end after a quarter, six months, a year is the investment performance of that particular asset class, meeting the expectations that we had, that we had built into the strategy. So all those activities can have a negative impact on investment performance, but none of those activities are covered in current regulations. The other problem we have is the financial press. You know, there's stories all the time coming out. How do I select the right financial advisor? And virtually every member of the press has the same approach, which look for a fiduciary. Ask the person whether they're willing to serve in a fiduciary capacity. Well, guess what the bad actors and actresses are doing? Oh, you want me to be a fiduciary? I'd be glad to be a fiduciary. Let me sign off. I'll take a pledge or write whatever you want. If you want me to wear a white hat or wear a white hat? And so the problem we have today is the number of faux fiduciaries that are out there, the number of advisors who claim to be providing fiduciary services who are not. And we need to do more research in this area, but our initial survey indicates about 35% of the people that call themselves a fiduciary are serving in that capacity. The other 65% are not.
1: And regardless of your political leanings or what administration we're talking about, it seems like BINRA... SEC, etc., cetera, their policing powers have gone down dramatically since I've been in the business 10, 15 years. And there's just, there's just no way that they can address all the challenges that present themselves by this faux fiduciary concept.
2: Totally agree. The other story I would add, I'm thinking here to make sure I don't defame anybody. <laughs> but immediately after Ed I got a call from the Department Thank of you. Labor to see if I'd be interested in serving as an advisor to the ERISA Advisory Council, an advisor to the Secretary of Labor. And I was really excited about the prospect of going to Washington, D.C., and actually rubbing elbows with the people responsible for ERISA recent procedural prudence, again, all the hard works of fiduciary. And I was very surprised when I got down there that there really were very few people that understood the concept of fiduciary from front to back. You know, regulators get very proficient in understanding a very specific paragraph or a specific clause. But what they fail to see is is the total impact that a fiduciary has on particularly investors, like I said, from beginning to end. So it's not so much the enforcement power, it's that they don't have people in Washington, D.C. that are familiar enough with the subject to serve in any type of enforce effective enforcement capacity.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think... We saw this play out recently with the shift in accreditation requirements, and status. I, I don't think the folks in the legislature understand like the downstream impacts or effects or even why they have these type of processes and procedures in place to begin with. Totally agree. So what's the solution, Don? Help us out. <laughs> is it just education? Is it is it a shift in mindset? I mean... Is there do you see things getting better or worse
2: overall? I think they're going to get worse before they get better. The fact that I was interviewed last week by this government watchdog indicates there's people in Washington, D.C. that are beginning to question the ROI on current fiduciary regulations, But fiduciary has become a bone for the politicians to fight over. You know, who can demonstrate to the public that they're taking the public's interest, have a greater interest in the safety of the public, become very political. Well, and now that you have
1: private equity, I mean, they own everything. And now they have the ability to 401k plans and other plans, individuals' plans cannot participate in these offerings. I mean, you and I having this conversation versus what Blackstone and KKR and Carlyle can forth and lobbying dollars, I agree with you. I don't, I don't think it's going to get much better anytime soon.
2: Yeah. yeah. I, by the way, I can speak to the p and We just moved out here to Charlotte and we looked for a rental. We decided we were going to rent for a year or two before we tried to buy. And I bet 85% of the homes that were available for rent are now owned by PE firms. And it made the experience extremely difficult because you were not dealing with uh, real live agents or brokers. You know, expressed an interest in a particular rental, you were led into an online application process that would take 20 pages, including one for your pet, a separate application for your pet, which, you know, affidavits from your veterinarians, pictures of your vet, pet. I got to a point I was so frustrated by the whole process. I got a picture of a bear and I said, yeah, this is, this is our pet. It's only 500 pounds. (laughs) 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 Completely, completely housebroken.
1: Yeah, it's, it's shocking. And I've talked about this on the show with some other folks recently, the fact that private equity is now getting into the wealth management and financial advisory business as well, I think is really problematic. And that's a question you talk about consumers and clients are are tr- getting trained up to ask if they're a fiduciary, which I think is a good first step. But they need to even be asking, like, what does the ownership structure look like behind the firm? Because you can't tell me that a high net worth individual's incentives are aligned with a ten year private equity fund that is, you know, looking to hit a certain IRR, etc. I mean, you have to be so knowledgeable b- about financial services <laughs> to even know to ask that question. It, it, it's just, I, I don't see, I don't see how the consumer, the general consumer, is is adept or or educated enough to even know what questions to ask for where to
2: go. Yeah, totally agree. And, and that was one of the questions we got from this watchdog group last week. You know, they were asking us a very similar question what you were asked, which is, uh, what can we help you and the center for board certified fiduciaries? We haven't even talked about that yet. But how can we help your center? And a couple of things that we suggested. One was start awarding the hammer award. Is that something you've ever heard of before? Hammer? It's inside the government. So you remember back 10, 15 years ago. NASA was found paying $50,000 for a hammer or a toilet seat. I can't remember what it was. Or it would be a hammer, hence the hammer award. And so now the government has an annual award where they start recognize actual government agencies that are providing a good ROI to investors. The hammer award? Okay. The I gotta hammer look, award. I've got to look this Yeah. Hammer award. Or another example would be uh, Malcolm Baldrige. You know, start recognizing organizations that are doing proper fiduciary training and in turn, providing people credentials or designations or marks associated with that training. Then the other thing, like you mentioned, is provide some funding for training. You know, if the SEC would take 1% of their enforcement budget and I market for uh, training, we'd have significant dollars to start training the advisors to do the job right.
0: Want to learn more about investing in alternatives? Take the next step by joining the Capital Club, an affinity peer-to-peer network of industry professionals organized by Excelsior Capital. You'll gain access to exclusive alternative investment opportunities, premium content and education, private events, and more. Visit excelsiorgp.com slash Capital Club podcast for more information and to sign up today.
1: So let's let's go there. Let's Let's get away from some of this pessimism that we've been uh, uncovering here, what is what are best practices in this space? You know, and from the context of if you are a high net worth individual or a family and you are interviewing a manager and they say yes, I'm a fiduciary, what are the next questions that you can ask them to confirm and really understand if they
2: are behaving like one? Sure. First of all, what I would say is if you're interviewing somebody as a potential advisor or consultant, view them as a leader and steward in your life. And if you can't see them serving in that role, for whatever reason, it could just be a personality difference. It could be first impressions just didn't strike you as having command, you know, the term we'd use in the military, command presence. That's really one of the first tall tale signs is whether the person comes across as an authentic leader and steward. A lot of the uh, work that we have done, research that we have done in the last 10 years has really started incorporating neuroscience into fiduciary responsibility. So one of the things that we have discovered is that complexity is an inhibitor to trust. So as that relates to your question, if you've got an advisor that comes right out of the barn with complex proposals, talking over the heads of the people, using industry jargon, legal terminology that the person's not familiar with, our industry has mistakenly thought for decades that if we demonstrated to a client or a prospect how much we know, they would trust us more. And we know from neuroscience, it's just the opposite effect. When you sit there and try to impress the client with all your terminology and legalese and so forth, you're actually having an inhibition to the formation of trust. So that's another sign, just you know, having that conversation. If the family members are not coming to a warm feeling of trust for that advisor, it's just the wrong advisor. And what are some of the, are those the, the red flags,
1: right? The other side of the question, is it just, is it go with your gut kind of thing? Or are there more technical analysis that, that you can apply when you're in these
2: conversations? Yeah, we do. This would be a good time to show those graphics that we have talked about.
1: Yeah, we can, I'll we'll have them up in front of me. If you want to go through them for our listeners who don't have the ability to see, please just go ahead and talk. I think you're going to th- go over
2: the governance, right? Yeah, it's it's called behavioral governance. Is the new framework that we're doing, and your line of questioning is is why we developed the graphics the way we did. And when your listeners have a chance to download these graphics, you're going to see they'll see a couple of things. First of all, they'll see that the framework, the decision making framework that we suggest people use is in plain English. There's no industry terminology, no legalese in it at all. And one of the reasons we do that is to make it universal. And that's particularly applicable to the family or office situation. You know, family members are serving on foundations and endowments, family-owned businesses. We talked about health plans now subject to a fiduciary standard. Of course, the retirement plans are subject to a fiduciary standard. The number of personal trusts uh, that the family is going to have Just the wealth management process in general. All of these are governance procedures. And what we have done is to define a universal decision making framework that can be used in any one of those decision making roles. So, in terms of interviewing a potential advisor or consultant, a place to start is with this framework and say, Tell me about your process. You know, if if we engaged you to find us appropriate real estate investments, what process? do you go through in making sure that you're introducing to our family the right and appropriate real estate options? What does that process look like? What kind of due diligence are you going to perform? What kind of monitoring reports are you going to get on an ongoing basis to make sure that you're progressing towards your goals and objectives? So that's one of the reasons why we designed the framework is is so that people have a chance, the investor has a chance, writing chance, to get a better understanding of what the advisor or consultant is going to do. And is there, I mean, on the presentation, you go through a
1: series of, of different buckets, right? You've got the universal, personal trust, foundations, endowments, wealth management, qualified plans, insurance, et cetera. Is there a huge variability between the different product types or buckets? I, no.
2: No, not huge. it's more language. Okay. Yeah, it's it's more language, you know, for a key decision maker, for example, who's going to be the key decision maker? In the fiduciary oversight of the employer-sponsored health plan, that key decision-maker is going to be different than the key decision-maker of a personal trust, wherever for it were Cape from. And then in terms of this neurofiduciary and where this
1: world interacts with behavioral finance or behavioral, behavioral governance, yeah, could you yeah. go a little bit deeper there?
2: Yeah, if I, if I could, let me start with behavioral governance, then move into behavioral finance, because... From a chronology standpoint, that's how our research evolved. So behavioral governance actually got its start from Katrina. You know, we're right in the middle of hurricane season. Again, just saw Ian plow through Fort Myers. Katrina was August 29th, 2005 when it slammed into New Orleans. Islands and in the first nine days, the Coast Guard rescued 24,500 people. 24,500 people in nine days. And if your listeners think back to that time period. Uh, No other government agency put up an appropriate response or a similar response. So after the crisis, Congress had hearings. Why did the Coast Guard get it right? and Everybody else fell on their sword. And the public was interested in an answer to those questions. And so the public raised funds to create a leadership think tank at the Coast Guard Academy. And in 2007, the Academy called me and said, would I consider coming back to the Coast Guard? So it had been 20 years since my last operational mission. Come back and be the first person to head up this think tank. So I decided, I'm going to use the word sabbatical. I'd take an 18-month sabbatical from the fiduciary world to study leadership. And what was interesting is before the Coast Guard even called me, I started thinking about how the people we were training on fiduciary responsibility were way out ahead of the regulators. Long before the regulators ever thought about imposing fiduciary standards on more and more advisors, the top advisors in the industry were going through the training. And I wanted to know whether there was common leadership behaviors with these advisors that wanted to be ahead of the game, wanted to be, you know, the top of their industry. So when the Coast Guard called, that was going through my mind that I said, you know, when I'm doing this research in Katrina, I bet you I'm going to find things out that we'll be able to take back to the fiduciary world, take back to Wall Street. So about nine months into this 18-month sabbatical, I had an inventory of all the leadership behaviors exhibited by the men and women at Katrina, and I had their decision-making framework. And the next logical step for me was to combine the two together, integrate leadership behaviors with decision-making. This is a million books on leadership, million books on decision-making. I figured somebody has built a framework to integrate the two. And just like I was amazed 20 years earlier about the lack of academic rigor in a fiduciary, what I discovered there was no framework Anywhere, in any industry, in any domain, that linked leadership with decision-making. So as soon as I discovered that, I went back to Coast Guard officials. I said, look, this is huge, particularly on Wall Street. You know, if we had a better understanding of the leadership and stewardship behaviors that amplify and infuse, improve investment decision-making outcomes, this is huge. Uh, Coast Guard didn't know what to do with that. <laughs> so he go ahead, Let's start a company to continue the research. And that's where we started Three efas So after we started Three Ethos, we added the stewardship as the third leg. So now we're looking at leadership, stewardship, and governance. And the Thayer Leader Development Group at West Point, if your listeners are not familiar with the Thayer Leader Development Group, it's an outstanding leadership development program at West Point. They reached out to me and said that we're intrigued by this leadership, stewardship, governance framework you've got. And so they invited me to be part of this Thayer Leader Development Group to be affiliated with it. And so I started putting on leadership boot camps at West Point for Wall Street executives. At the same time, I had an opportunity to meet my counterpart at West Point. So the officer in charge of leadership development at West Point, Colonel Sean Hanna, was also teaching at the Thayer Leader Development Group. We got to be good friends. In 2015, Sean approached me and he said, Don, I really like your leadership stewardship governance framework. I got I think I have academic research that will psychometrically validate your framework. Now, in all honesty, I had no idea what the word psychometric validation is. <laughs> yeah. I,
1: it's a new one. I mean, I, I, you know, neurofiduciary is a new one on me and you're going deeper than that. So,
2: yeah. Well, I had enough sense that the way he, he said he thought it could improve, I, I just said, yes. Of course, this a great one of the best decisions I ever made. 2017, this research that he led in neuroleadership, leadership for that research, Sean was recognized as recognized by the Academy of Management as the most impactful professor in the world right. in the area of leadership and management. And what this academic team is is famous for is they discovered that leaders have a different brain mapping, have different neurological capacity than the rest of us. So there is such a thing as a natural born leader, just like there's a natural boy, you know, gifted athlete, academic, musician, natural born leaders. So when I started to study his research on neuroleadership, what I found very quickly is that if I removed the word leadership and replaced it with the word fiduciary, everything's still flowing. And it was beginning to validate what I had observed for the last, whatever it was at that point, 20 years, training advisors, that there is such thing as gifted fiduciaries. There, there are people that are just better suited to serve in a fiduciary way. So since then, we have been developing the body of research around the world fiduciary. We have our own psychometric instrument, meaning think you know, the academics go ballistic when I say this, but for your listeners, it's like a Myers Briggs. People are more familiar with that, even though it's not psychometrically validated. It's that concept. So, we actually have the ability to test somebody or a group. We can also test a committee and see what their leadership strengths and blind spots are. Same with stewardship and blind spots. Same with governance and decision making. And we know that there are certain behaviors, they're called modifi- modifying variables. There are very specific behaviors that will determine the quality of decision-making outcomes.
1: This is where it gets interesting, right? This nature versus nurture. So your, your research has shown that there are people that are inherently predisposed to being better leaders, but they can also improve that leadership skill over time,
2: right? That was correct. Okay. If, if you put a gun to the academic team and you said, you got you to gotta give us a number, they would say 30% of Nature, 70% is nurture. So even the natural born leader needs to be given the right opportunity, the right grooming to fulfill that leadership capability. And, and you can understand why that topic would be so critical, particularly to the military academies. You know, how do we take the young 18 year old young man, young woman, and in 200 weeks graduate them to become officers in the military? And, and
1: so what does that I mean, have you seen what that product or process looks like on the back end after this research has been applied to those folks?
2: Yeah, still a little bit too early for that. So, one of the things that we need to do in our research, where, like I said, we've got our own instruments to start testing people, is three year later, three years later, go back and test the same individuals and see if we've seen an improvement in those modifying variables, and also seen an improvement in their business activities. And the success of their their clients. Anecdotally, we can tell you that it's transformational. The people that go through the training, the advisors that go through the training, say it's, it's transformation. It's not transaction, and that's another difference between what the regulators are doing versus what we're doing in the academic world. The regulators, it's all transaction. You know, disclosure conflicts, disclosure fees, and as we talked about the fact that alone is not going to improve investment outcomes. It needs to be transformational. You need you need The advisors to start thinking to themselves, serving in a leadership and stewardship roles and the impact that has on client relationships. The other thing that we're hearing anecdotally is that the advisors who go through the training end up winning more finals presentations. And they would tell you it's because they're able to come across as being more genuine and authentic
1: to the interviewing party. Yeah, you would think that they'd be winning more business because that culture and that training is showing through to the end user so that makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll have to do another episode. I mean, it's so interesting. I listened to your interview on the podcast and did some homework. And at first I thought, you know, fiduciary, right? It's just a, it's a word, but you've gone in such an interesting different direction with it. And there's a lot to get into. Could you, as we wind this conversation down, could you maybe touch on the certification, the board that you're involved in and what that looks like process-wise and... What people should be familiar with, if they see somebody who has gone through that certification, sure. Yeah,
2: thank you. About two and a half years ago, a of fiduciary advocates came to me and said, "Hey, you're getting too far afield here with leadership and stewardship. We we haven't seen any new thought leadership in the fiduciary world in like in two decades. Can you come back and you know continue that thought leadership?" And took about four or five phone calls to begin to convince me I should do that. And you know, on the fifth call, I said, "Okay." If we're going to do this, we've got to do, it's got to be big. And very quickly, all of us identified three areas. First, there is no master's degree anywhere in the country with a concentration of fiduciary studies. 17 and fiduciaries in the country. No university is offering a master's degree with a concentration of fiduciary studies. That's number one. Number two, focus on the 17 and a half million lay fiduciaries and develop protocols or training programs to help them. And then number three, take a page out of the medical community and board-certify fiduciaries by specialty. So now we'll be board certifying by, you know, 401k plans, defined benefit plans, private trusts, wealth management, foundations endowments, employer-sponsored health plans, even indigenous studies. Two weeks or next month, next month, I'll be going to the Philippines to train island leaders from Guam, Sinipan, Taipan, and so forth. So in that pursuit... We went to identify a university that we affiliate with to build this first master's degree, and we've selected Wake Forest University in large part because Dr. Sean Hanna, now Dr. Sean Hanna. So it was Colonel Sean Hanna, now it's Dr. Sean Hanna, a tenured professor at Wake Forest, and so that was a good relationship that we wanted to pursue. So it's a four and a half day program or a four day program that advisors go through, two very extensive trusts, and then they go through a peer review at the end, determine that, okay, academically, you've demonstrated you have the knowledge, but now there'll be a peer review of fellow fiduciaries who will determine whether you are deserving of the mark or not. And I should add that four days doesn't sound like a lot of time. It's not, but we're only taking extremely experienced fiduciaries into the program in the first place. In other words, we're not teaching you how to be a fiduciary. We are not teaching you how to do diligence on an investment option or how to prepare a performance report or design an asset allocation study. That's presumed that you have that expertise before you come. The focus is on how to apply behavioral governance and fiducia to improve your decision making outcomes.
1: Yeah, super interesting, impressive. And I checked out the Wake Forest you know, website and the work they're doing there. It's really cool. But Don, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been super interesting. And and I'm curious where the research will lead you. And I hope my listeners have enjoyed it as well. Please leave us a review. Let us know the favorite part of today's episode. Don, if people are interested in learning more about the space, the work you're doing, the research, whats what are some good resources for them to get engaged?
2: We have not written book number 11. Not
1: yet. Not yet.
2: <laughs> yeah. Not yet. By the way, in the family office space, I was co author of the book Freedom from Wealth. Charles Lollenhop was the primary author, and his portion of the book is exquisite. I think, have you had a chance to interview him? No. No. He is, he's an incredible consultant to family offices. What's the, what's his name again? Charles. And then Lollenhop, L O W E N H A U P T. Yeah, I'll ping him. Yeah, his expertise, it, well, it's broad, but his expertise is in working with Gen 2 and 3. And particularly he's opposed to the use of personal trusts to shackle second, third generation to the desires of the matriarch and patriarch. Hmm. Hence the title, freedom from wealth. And uh, so anyhow, i got to address there for a second. We have not written any books yet on behavioral governance. We have a couple articles written. The excuse for all of this is this is unfolding so fast, and we're making so many incremental steps in this new body of research that to take the time to write a book about it, it'll be out of date before it even gets published. And the other self-serving comment I would make on this is... This research is right for a Nobel Prize in economics. 2017, we had the Nobel Prize in behavioral finance. The difference here is behavioral finance focuses on the individual investor, the family member. Now with behavioral governance, the focus is on the key decision makers. How does the consultant impact investment decisions? How does the matriarch and patriarch and patriarch, their leadership and stewardship impact family investments? But the Concept of behavioral governance is applicable to any industry or domain, so it's much broader in application in behavioral finance. So this topic is so rich for deeper dive, greater training, greater application that we haven't taken time to put anything into a book.
1: (laughs) Well, you've got plenty of of material. Well, Don, I want to thank you so much for coming on. It's been great please keep up the good work. This is an area that needs more exploration and better understanding on the consumer client side. So I look forward to staying in touch and thank you again for coming on and and sharing your expertise.
2: Yeah. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you for joining us for today's episode of The Capital Club. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review and stay tuned for our next episode coming soon.